everybody. Welcome to Fuel Radio. On the line with me today is Shalane Strom. Welcome, Shalane. Thank you so much, Rod. It's great to be here. Shalane is the National Education Lead at Food for the Hungry. And um, you're situated in Abbotsford. Is, is Food for the Hungry, is that where their offices are? That's where our Canadian national office is, yes, in Abbotsford. We're going to talk more about Food for the Hungry in a minute. I'll just... As a way of giving more of an introduction to Shalane, we're going to talk about her own journey and how she ended up there. Um, but I just want to read a little bit about Food for the Hungry. On their website, it says, Our purpose to end poverty one community at a time. Our promise to graduate communities out of poverty in 10 years. I want to talk to you about that statement. I kind of like that. I'd like to explore that some more, the idea of graduating communities. Yeah, Sure. And then just so you know what we're talking about, Food for the Hungry is a Christian nonprofit organization dedicated to ending poverty one community at a time. Food for the Hungry will walk alongside the most vulnerable communities throughout the developing world as they strive toward sustainability. We can, we can leave it there. So just tell us a little bit more about your role at Food for the Hungry. What is a national education lead? That is a great question. <laughs> I am responsible for helping Canadians understand root causes of poverty. That would be kind of the, the short answer. Ah. Uh, essentially, I have the privilege of connecting with Canadian individuals, uh, churches, businesses, people who, are, who have an interest in the whole development world but who really, what it really comes down to is helping people kind of unlock their passion for poverty alleviation. And so one of the things that I love about Food for the Hungry is we are very committed to helping people really understand what is God calling them to. And so for those who have a, a heart calling and a passion for helping the vulnerable and coming alongside the vulnerable, then my role is to um, just really fan that passion and even to help people know what could that look like? What are, what are ways that I could be involved? And so I'm responsible for all manner of different educational kinds of offerings, which we can talk more specifically about. But um, yeah, I just have the privilege of connecting with people all across the country and helping them understand poverty and its root and what we can do about it. So understanding poverty, what do you think is sort of, what's some of the misconceptions about poverty and maybe hunger specifically? What, mm. what do we need to learn? What do you, what do you, what do you find you need to educate people on the most? Well, I say this as one who, you know, if you had talked to me about this 10 years ago, I probably would have given you the very thing that I'm now trying to help people understand differently, that same mm. answer, uh, I probably would have said poverty is the lack of stuff. It's mm. the lack of resources. It's the lack of opportunity. And what I have come to appreciate through my work with Food for the Hungry is that's often a presenting symptom, but it's not a root issue. And so if there's one key thing that I would challenge people to think about in terms of poverty is to consider poverty as broken relationships. And so we often talk about four key relationships that God designed us to be in 
to have a relationship with him, to have a relationship with ourselves, to have relationship with others, and then to have a relationship with creation or the physical world. And if we start thinking about poverty from that place, because you know how you define a problem will affect how you solve the problem or how you attempt to solve the problem. If we think of, of poverty only as material, then our tendency is to give material things like money or, you know, food or whatever, clothing, that kind of thing. If we think of poverty as broken relationships, then our approach to addressing poverty is completely different. And what we find is that if we start at dealing with the root cause, then what we end up with is a sustainable long-term change, not just simply a Band-Aid on the problem. <laughs> I can see that. I, I've, long I've long talked about, even individually, like roots and fruits, right? Absolutely. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah sure. okay. So yeah, you're expanding my mind here a little bit. And just reminding me that, yeah, poverty is just a symptom. It's not the, it's not the root cause. Can you, and, and you're talking about relationships, can you talk about a little bit more or maybe even give an example of how a relationship was broken and how that ended up in, in, in poverty and maybe mm. how that, I mean, we're jumping to stories already, but <laughs> how, how the root cause was addressed and that helped the, the particular community that you were, that Food for the oh, Hungry was working with. For sure. I've actually had the privilege of uh, visiting our, our communities in Cambodia three different times. And one community in particular comes to mind. They are situated in northern Cambodia and made up primarily of ex-Khmer Rouge soldiers or their family members. And so if you know anything about the Cambodian genocide, which honestly I knew very little before I traveled there, um, it's, it's one of those atrocities in our history as human beings that it's just breathtaking, the, the horrific things that happened in that country. And when um, Pol Pot was no longer in, in power, he was the leader, people dispersed. And a lot of these ex-soldiers uh, fled into the jungles of northern Cambodia. So what happened then during that genocide period was nobody trusted anybody. So all relationships were broken with other people. Family members were giving up family members and then they were being killed. And um, so just the, the brokenness between what do I even do within myself when I'm you know, being asked to betray the very people I love? And so there's just a, a huge amount of brokenness. And so what our, our Cambodian staff members have done is they have essentially moved into the neighborhood. And so for the first two years, they really just built trust with people and got to know these people. And I have to understand that in these villages, in this one in particular I'm thinking of, these people wouldn't even talk to their neighbors. They, they would have nothing to do with anyone. And so our staff just came in with this attitude of, we're here, we wanna to get to know you. They were very respectful. They were um, dignifying the experience of this people group's past and recognizing the pain and the loss and the fear that was true in the community. 
and they just built relationships. They did a lot of listening, listening. And from that, one of our staff members was given an opportunity to sit down with um, the chief of this particular village. And she said to him, you know, as you look around this community, what would you like for your community? And he said, I would like people to stop drowning here. Mm. And the, the comment came from the reality that the village was separated from the market and from um, services like medical services um, and education was separated by this river that wound back and forth. And so during dry season, they could just walk across. But during rainy season, it became this torrent of water. And so children trying to go to school would end up drowning trying to cross the river. Or wow. women who were in labor and needing extra help would end up giving birth on the side of the river. And so there was a compassion within this chief's heart to say, I don't want to see this anymore. And so the staff member was able to say, well, what do you need? And he said, well, we need bridges, but we don't have, we don't have material. We don't have money. We don't have anything and I can't do it on my own. And so the staff member was able to walk him through a process of saying, look at the wood that is in your neighborhood here. Look at what is around you. And we can help you. We can bring the knowledge on how to do this. You collect people to do the work. So here's this chief who's bringing together people. I don't even talk to each other and saying, but we could build these bridges. And so there's this, you know, physical, tangible bridge piece in this. But there's also the metaphor of these bridges, bridges that are being built among people. And so they worked together and they built these beautiful hardwood bridges. I tell you, it's almost, it's a wood that's very much probably like teak. So there, there's some incredibly exquisite Strong bridges. Wood. Yeah, exactly. Oh, and beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, just absolutely beautiful. And so yeah. uh, when my husband and I visited Cambodia the first time, we were actually the first Canadians to come and be able to see the work of this community. And it's hard for me to not become quite emotional telling this story because I can imagine, you heard the yeah. backdrop of who this community was. Yeah. We arrive and they're sitting on the bridge together having lunch as a community. Wow. And they're waiting wow. because they're so proud and they're so excited about what they've done. Mm. So yeah, that's a long way to get to answer your question of what does that actually <laughs> look like? So here's this group of people with all this intense brokenness of relationship who have literally Mm -hmm. physically built bridges with the help and the support and the walking alongside of Food for the Hungry staff. And now Mm -hmm. they would be the first to say to you, we look out for our neighbors. We pay attention if someone is sick because there's been this trust and this relationship healing and really a reconciliation of relationship that has come in this community. And it's it's just a, a beautiful, beautiful thing to witness. That's a great story on so many levels. I mean, it's, <laughs> I, I can really see how healing that would be. So it wasn't like you went in and you did therapy or anything like that, no. but I would imagine the healing took place and trust 
was built as people worked together. Yeah. And uh, yeah, incredible. Yeah. That's really cool. Um, so it sounds like, I mean, you weren't, you didn't just deliver food to the area. It sounds like food for the hungry does addresses issues, uh, sort of more of the systemic issues r rather than just uh, food. Yeah, actually to kind of tackle that question, it might be helpful to just think a little bit about the difference between relief, rehabilitation and development. Um, we are primarily a development organization, but we actually do some relief efforts. In fact, I'm sure you're aware of the horrible um, storms that have been hitting Guatemala and Nicaragua, those areas right now. So currently in Guatemala, we have communities that we've been working with for years so they're established food for the hungry communities that we're doing this long-term work with, but now there's this crisis that has hit. And so we are actually providing some relief, which by definition, relief is something that is basically saving people's lives. So it's making sure that they have food, shelter, and water. And so we are providing um, hygiene kits to make sure that they have clean blankets, those kinds of things, and basic food provisions and clean water. That's something that we will do until that emergency and, and that threat, that urgent threat passes, um, which probably won't be very long. Like we're maybe talking a week or two. And very quickly, we will transition to this rehabilitation model, which is more about, it's, it's stopping the doing for and giving people things and saying, okay, now we need to work together and figure out how do we move ahead. And so it engages people and we start the walking with process. And that's really what development is. It's coming alongside walking together so that everybody is being transformed in the process. It's not just about haves and have nots. It's about saying we are all equally broken and equally impoverished we're just not all equally vulnerable and so as we walk together with our communities then we are changed as staff and you know they are they are experiencing this change as well and so that's when we feel like that's the right relationship that god has called us to when we're all being transformed and we're all reaching the kinds of potentials that God has innately created us to, uh, to have and to express. It sounds like a great model. So it's not like, like in Puerto Rico, for example, that's, that was, you know, when the hurricane hit there, that's one that's really been in the news a lot. So, mm. you know, they needed relief right away, but the mm. whole island was wiped out <laughs> yeah. and they needed to rebuild after that. And I guess that's where, um, well, some of the relief was, there wasn't enough relief for the, for that country. And, um, but there, there are some amazing stories of individuals and, mm. and companies and, and organizations that went in there and that provided development and, and uh, helped mm -hmm. rebuild the country. So and that's, yeah, that's cool that you do that. Yeah. Yeah. That's what's really so key is, is recognizing when do we need to transition from one model to the next? Sure. Because honestly, as, Canadians as North Americans, we actually find relief um, kind of like the thing to do. It's it's a little bit of a, 
a sexy way to help, if you will. Yeah, yeah, um, for sure. It's and even uh, you know, like the Red Cross or whatever. These are different organizations will raise a ton of money. Yeah, it's it's almost like they're waiting for the next crisis so that they can. Yeah. <laughs> They yeah. can raise a bunch of money, yeah. And unfortunately, and and Haiti is actually an example where relief went bad mm -hmm. um, because organizations, well-meaning organizations, sent in huge amounts of rice after the um, big earthquake that happened about a decade ago. Um, and yeah, it's probably longer than that now. Um, but in the immediate, it was a great provision because people had something to eat. That rice continues to flow in as aid today. And so the effect of that is that rice farmers in Haiti have no market to sell their product because of the influx of all of this external rice that's free. And so there's actually, you know, that's when we talk about poverty is systemic. There's business um, opportunities that are making money by shipping into, you know, this kind of a situation. Um, and I'm, I'm not going to try to get into the complexities of all of that, just to say that people didn't know when to stop the relief and when to transition into rehabilitation and development. And so it has left many Haitians without employment that they could gen, you know, genuinely be providing for their families but they're actually in a more materially poor state than they were before because of the relief aid. So that's, that's sad. That's where it feels tragic. Yeah. I've seen this firsthand. Like I worked for an organization on the downtown East side and mm. we were providing meals and, and we had a work program and um, eventually the executive director bravely said, there's, there's no, no one's going hungry down here. There's plenty of meals being provided, right? Right. And so we decided to focus more on the development model and, and focus on providing jobs for people and, and training mm. people to do work and, and that sort of thing. And often transition from either incarceration where they didn't have a job or right. um, mental illness or whatever. Anyways, yeah, I've, I've seen that firsthand. I, I would imagine just going back maybe to the history of Food for the Hungry is that somewhere along the way, someone said maybe the exact same thing is that they saw what was going on in Haiti or somewhere else and said, okay, this is, this is great. We can do that. And mm -hmm. we can um, focus on development as well. Maybe you could say a bit more about that. Like, like I said, off the top, the whole um, graduating a community. What, what does, what does that mean? How do you, how do you do that? Oh, that's, I love talking about that because to me, that's one of the most exciting pieces is the, the model that we have um, currently, actually, we're very proud to be able to say we have 69 communities that have graduated. So moving from being stuck in extreme material poverty to uh, thriving and being self-sustaining so since 1994, 69 communities have graduated. What that means is they've gone through roughly a 10 year process of walking together with us. So a community that enters into a, a partnership with us agrees that they are in a place that they would like to be out of. And um, so we have an MOU that is signed right from the beginning that everybody's clear what the agreement is and what the partnership will look like. 
And then for the, about the first two years, like I mentioned in the earlier story, our staff come alongside and they listen. And they, they use that opportunity to drink tea together and to know who does the, the village see as their leaders. And it's I, I really like a, that. I think it'd be so easy to just go in and say and immediately say, oh, this is what they need, right? But they, yeah. they listen. And I love that example that you gave where, yeah. uh, where the chief finally said, I, I want people to stop drowning that that's yeah. really cool sorry sorry for yeah. interrupting keep going. no that's fine but but essentially what you're talking about what our model is it's called asset-based community development and so what we're doing in that first two-year period is listening for the assets so we don't go in saying oh my goodness look at everything that's wrong here we go in listening and looking for what are the strengths because we all have god-given abilities to creatively solve problems and what people don't often realize is that they have that potential within them because nobody has helped them to understand what could look different. And so we're actually, we're looking for people, we like to call them positive deviants. So somebody who's maybe doing something just a little bit different that within the village that is actually something that is um, a success or you know, could move in the direction of really being a positive change but they just don't have the support or they, they just need that really um, empowered. They need the opportunity to, to blossom in that. And so then for that, for that two years, it's really very much about relationship building and trust building. And, you know, just to segue a little bit from our model, one quick story. Um, there's a woman in Cambodia who all of her family members, except for one, were killed by the Khmer Rouge uh, regime. And she is a, a Food for the Hungry staff member. And she was asked if she would move from the area that she lived in to this northern uh, Cambodia near the Thailand, Thailand border area to work with this group of ex-Khmer Rouge soldiers. And you can imagine on a personal level how terrifying and the just the processing of forgiveness and what does this mean? And I remember her saying to me, um, I just had to start having tea with these people because I needed to see them as broken individuals in need of healing and forgiveness and reconciliation, just like me. And and so she sat and she had tea. She was physically trembling the first time she sat down with the village chief because she feared for her life. She was terrified. Um, and yet now she considers some of these people some of her closest friends. And so that's the, that's the kind of sacrifice that our, our staff make. It's also the incredible commitment that they have to this um, model, if you will, of coming alongside and listening. Mm -hmm. Once we have gone through that, that uh, listening phase, which is like I mentioned, roughly two years, then we move into something we call an envisioning time. And so we bring together the village leaders. So these are people that the village um, uh, community themselves have chosen to be their leaders. And there's a village development committee that is struck. And they begin then thinking, what do we want? How do we want our community to be? What do we want our children to grow up in and with? 
And so there's facilitated activities that help people figure out really how to dream because a lot of people just don't even know how to think big and how to dream when they've been so stuck and, and in such um, difficult circumstances. Part of what we do as well then is we partner Canadians with communities internationally. So we have individuals, we have um, businesses, we have churches who partner with specific communities. And do you remember those days when we could actually travel, Rod? <laughs> Back in those days, yeah, um, yeah. we had our, our people from Canada will go and actually get to know the community members in their partnered communities. Mm. And um, what's beautiful about that is we don't go to do anything or fix anything or build anything. Mm -hmm. We go to, I shouldn't say not to build anything, we go to build relationship. Right. And we go to learn from one another and to, um, to be together in that way. So it's not like the missions trip model where you're going to build a no. church or anything. You're just going to get to know the, yeah. get to know the community. Yeah. yeah. Which I can and imagine is super, super powerful. I could, it yeah. is. anyways, keep going. I, I, I could tell I've experienced lots of stories like that. And I spent um, 10 months in the Philippines. Mm, okay. And um, so I, I've always, you know, when I was 19 years old and I've, you know, I've said since that time that everybody needs to go to a developing world country, you know, you'll experience something um, and, and meet someone who will just, will, who will, who will change your life and your outlook mm -hmm. on the world. Right. So mm -hmm. yeah, I can see how important it would be to go actually go and, yeah. and just spend time with the people in the community. Yeah. I think just to add to what you're saying there, one of the things that I hear in your comment is, to go and be a learner, to go and be open to that person or those people who will change your life. Right. Um, yeah. Not to go as the great white savior coming in to rescue and to fix. <laughs> and, and, you know, honestly, yeah. that's, you asked initially, what's my job as the national education lead for Food for the Hungry? Mm -hmm. A big part of it is to help people recognize within ourselves that we have that mentality very mm -hmm. often we feel yeah. like we want to go we want to fix that our way is better that we have the answers yeah. and so with um the partnerships that we have what we really see is this beautiful humility that grows over time as we are transformed as canadians and recognize that uh we don't actually have the answers and we have a lot to learn and so there's there's a beautiful relational connection that changes all of us as we partner together. So yes, the Canadians can provide some financial resources to help the work um, with our, our national staff, but we as Canadians just have a whole lot to learn from our international brothers and sisters that uh, is really pretty beautiful when you see it happening. And, and it's not to say that we don't actually, we don't ever build anything there, um, but we do if we're invited and we're asked to. So if the community decides, hey, we'd really like to build a school, and we know that some of our Canadian uh, brothers and sisters are in carpentry and they're skilled in that, let's invite them to come and help us. And so it's just the shift, right? It's the, rather than us coming and saying, you need a school, it's them saying, hey, we need a school. Would you like to help us build that? 
so it's just it's a change in in how we think and how we go about it. And then we get to that point. Yeah. Um, so just just to be clear, all the way through this, we have all kinds of different metrics that are being um, employed and measured along the way. So we mm. do baseline assessments at the very beginning. So we sure. know how many latrines there are, how many hand washing stations there are, um, how many kids are in school. And because we take a very holistic approach, we're looking at health, we're looking at education, we're looking at leadership development, we're looking at building resilience within people, um, livelihoods, uh, agriculture, you know, all these different areas, and that's all being measured. And so when we come to the point where we say it's time for graduation, it's not a surprise to anybody because everybody knows the community is ready to graduate. And so it's not like there's this, okay, guys, it's been 10 years, we're out of here. It's, hey, you know what? As a community, we're ready for you to leave FH. And in fact, we're not just ready for you to leave. We're yeah. ready to start helping a partnering village uh-huh. um, or like a, a nearby village okay. because we've experienced this transformation and we are thriving. And so they so kind of pay it forward in a sense. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And we see that happening. So we have a big party when it's time for them to graduate. Because I think it's important to celebrate, and we also think it's really important that there's a a marker that says, "This, you guys have done this." You know, we are, and and we bring community members, government officials, um, church leaders, all kinds of people together, because collaboration is is huge to the DNA of of FH. And so when we have a celebration and a graduation, we know that it's because all of these different players have been part of this process um yeah and who doesn't love a big party (laughs) yeah sounds awesome i'm sure there's lots of challenges along the way and it's not easy but yeah sounds incredible i I love that model um do you have a favorite story uh i mean you you shared the north cambodia story that's that's quite an amazing one does another one come to mind where uh, a community that's that's graduated well, community that's graduated, um, yeah, there's, well, there would be lots of stories on that. Uh, if you're asking a favorite story sure. um, in a community that's moving toward graduation, I went to visit a school and on the wall, there was this uh, vision board and it had about 75 pictures of 75 little bicycles and a couple of outhouses and some trees and then a bunch of kids playing. And, and so I started asking questions. And this little guy who talk about mature beyond, beyond his years, he, I believe, was about 11 or 12 at the time. And so through a translator, he told me that he had been watching his parents be part of one of the savings and loans groups. So a savings and loans group in an FH community is our staff help help bring people together to say, what can you contribute to save to the savings? And so essentially, you probably have heard of microfinance or it's creating a little bank, but it's only community members who are participating in it. So there's no outside um, resources being brought in. And so you and I would each maybe put in our dollar or 25 cents or whatever we could. And then there's a, a committee for that savings and loans group that actually decides who they're going to lend this money out to. And so I might need $2 to um, buy gasoline 
for my tractor so I can plant my crop. And so the money is loaned to me. And then the I have that opportunity to plant the crop. And then when the crop is harvested, I pay that back and then it gets loaned out to somebody else. So this little boy was watching his parents be involved in one of these savings and loans groups. And he's he went to the FH staff and he said, why can't we do that as kids? And our staff were like, well, why can't you? Of course you can. So our staff members took these kids through the exact same process of listening and envisioning and the kids put together this dream board they wanted everybody to have a bicycle they wanted to have appropriate latrines for their school they and and they had this list of things that they felt like they would really like to work towards saving for and so out of that little school they had three different savings groups that were these kids who would you know contribute maybe 25 cents whatever it was and they were starting to see their dreams and um, the realities come into being for what they wanted their school and their community to look like. And I just think these are kids and they, they got it, you know, like talk about train up a child. Um, they they're doing it. They're making a difference in their community at this very young age. So that gets me excited because to me, that's the generational change then. That, that you see that really ensures that something is, is long lasting. Yeah, fantastic. So um, where is food for the hungry going? I, just before I ask that question, I, I kind of have to ask everyone, like how has the pandemic affected food for the hungry and, and the, way you, the way you do things? Like you said, you can't travel. So mm-hmm. um, what, what are some ways that you've had to adapt? Sure. Um, One of the things from an education perspective is we offer a lot of in-person workshops. We have a workshop that's called Ending Poverty Together. And for a long time, we had been saying, you know, it would be good to have this online. And what the pandemic said is now is a good time. And so we actually offer our workshops online now. And what's been really cool about that, actually, is we now, you know, normally if you offer a workshop in person, you get the people from the Abbotsford community who have that option. Now we've actually, we had a pastor from India join us on one of our online versions and we have people from the Maritimes joining us. And and so we get this great diversity. So that's really been an exciting um, addition. So those are available. We offer them on a regular basis. In terms of our communities, they all faced shutdowns of different kinds. Um, really depends on the, the country as to specifically how that was affecting them. Um, our staff are fabulous about checking in. And you know, one of the things that I think is helpful to understand is when we're working with a community, because it's relationship-based, we already have those relationships established. So there's a remarkable number of cell phones that are present all over the world. And, um, and so our staff would communicate by phone. And education was able to be done, um, I believe it was in Ethiopia. They were, or Rwanda, I'm not, don't quote me on that. Um, one of the, the two countries where they were able to do education over the radio. And so kids, even though they were at home, they were still able to continue with their, their schooling and with their studies. Uh, we have provided relief aid in certain situations. We have done a lot of training and instruction on 
hand washing and um, you know physical distancing, those kinds of things. And the communities have responded. Um, I know of one situation where we had a, um, a webinar, and this is one of the things that's been great with technology as well. We've been able to have webinars with our, our country staff. And so our Canadian people, while they haven't been able to travel, have still been able to connect. We've been able to have those kind of conversations and just hear updates. And one of our Cambodian um, webinars, they were telling us how the, the livelihood, so the actual income coming into this particular community was significantly decreased. But because of the community support that is present now within this village um, and the gardening and the ability that they have had to grow their own um, household gardens, nobody's going hungry because they're checking in on one another and they're sharing with one another. And so there's just been a lot of um, kind of what we do actually works moments in this pandemic time. And we knew that and we saw that, but this is like everything that we thought kind of on, it's kind of on steroids right now because it's crisis, right? And so we're seeing the resilience within our communities. Um, and that's been really, really encouraging. And, and we've been so grateful for our donors. Uh, again, because we have such great relationship with our donors, they, they've just been um, really generous and really stepping up and um, meeting needs where they are. So we feel, we feel pretty grateful. Yeah, when I'm looking at your website right now. I see there's different ways to get involved. So you can sponsor a child. You have a gift guide. Yes. You have other ways to give. Um, right from the very start, when I heard about Food for the Hungry and what you did, I was fascinated by the idea of um, sponsoring a, a, a community. I, I think mm -hmm. just because I really appreciate development, it would be fun to sort of adopt a, a community and watch it grow and change and then eventually graduate. That sounds like a really fascinating uh, program <laughs> to me. So mm -hmm. um, I'll, yeah. I'll give a shout out to your website. It's uh, fhcanada.org. So Food for the Hungry is a Canadian organization, or do you have a, a, a base in the U.S. as well? or is uh, it... Food for the Hungry is an international organization, actually. We okay. are an affiliate, but there are organizations in Japan and Korea and Australia, U.S., all okay. many, many around the world. Yeah. Okay, yeah. great. So you're the national lead for education in Canada. That's correct. Yeah, right on. Yeah. Well, I really enjoyed our conversation today and um, the things that you shared. And uh, I, I love what you do. And oh, I just really you. appreciate you taking the time today. I'm really, really grateful to be able to talk to you today and find out more about what you're up to. And, and um, I'm sure our listeners appreciated it as well. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. Um, can I just give one more uh, little resource for listeners. absolutely yeah please do <laughs> so because fhdna is collaboration and we love working together we do that on the field we do that in canada we have started a site a couple of years ago called endingpovertytogether.org okay and there's over 40 different organizations that are participating in providing educational resources for canadians so that we can be equi equipped and empowered to make a difference in poverty alleviation 
here in Canada and internationally. So mm-hmm. endingpovertytogether.org if you're looking for a way to resource yourself in, here in Canada. Excellent. So if you're listening on iTunes or another platform, we'll have links to all of that in our show notes on uh, fuelradio.com. And I think you can find that. I've been on that page before. I think you can find it on Food for the Hungry as well, right? There's a link yeah. to endingpoverty.org as well. Yeah. Yes. Well, Good. thank you so much, Rod. It's great to be able to be here and share some of this uh, exciting work that we're doing. <laughs>